Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with co-host-elect Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we consider in what ways we have become our parents, and we attempt to use that insight to better understand how we can provide a quantitative review of a substantive manuscript without becoming the much-reviled reviewer, too. Along the way, we also discuss Ginsu knives, not wearing pants, Ouija boards, using and in place of but, five-finger death punches, the Kraken, happy feet, mad libs, everyone needing a long street, book versus movie endings, and dumpster diving. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I have a question for you. Okay, let me get a refill on my coffee. I want to know what things your parents did that drove you crazy that you are now doing. (laughs) Is this a double episode of which I was (laughs) unaware? Yeah, let's hear it. Oh my gosh. Oh, I have to think about this. Not only think about the ones that occur to me, but the ones that I want actually recorded. Oh, we'll edit this out. Yeah. (laughs) Oh boy. I never let a car go below half tank of gas, even if I'm in town Mm -hmm. and I have a car with a little computer thing. So not the carsophagus, which, by Mm -hmm. the way, Uh it is not mummifying. (laughs) Thanks for the update. Yeah, for an update. It's actually, I'm kind of thinking it's getting worse. Uh In the Honda Accord we have, as it says, uh, it estimates how many miles you have left on your tank of gas. Even if it says 280 miles left in the range of the car, if it's at half a tank, Mm -hmm. I will stop and fill it up because you don't let it go below half a tank. Is that something your parents did that you now do? My dad. My mom managed to work medical issues into every conversation. Every one. It didn't matter. (laughs) If you haven't seen mom for five months... We had a little pool, like, all right, how many minutes will it be before she brings up something medical? That is something I actively avoid. Really? How is the puncture wound in the palm of your hand, (laughs) which you showed me about 11 minutes ago holding it up to the camera? And I said, that's disgusting. Don't show that to me again. So how is that going in not weaving that into conversation? You tell me. Oh, God, put it down. Oh, that is so disgusting. That's totally different. (laughs) There's this one thing that Goldie worries that I will do that my mom used to do. And that is mom would send food back at a restaurant. Uh. But she was never rude about it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you how many meals as a kid where she would actually request to speak to the chef. It was the most cringeworthy thing that I could possibly imagine, right? So I try to err on the side of not sending things back, but Goldie worries that I will. Like, I'll be tasting something and I'll go, you know, I asked not to have onions on the salad. They put onions on the salad. She looks at me like a pitcher shaking off the signs from the catcher. So I feel it rising up in me, the desire, not uh-huh. to summon the chef to the table, right. but the desire maybe to send something back, but Goldie shakes me off. This is quite funny. I still don't know where you're going with this, but one yeah. that my brother raised just a while ago, he's in a leadership position in his company, and he actually oversees hundreds of people, and we were on his back deck, and out of the blue, he turned to me and he said, 
How many times are you talking to your group and you use a military reference and nobody in the room understands what it is? And I (laughs) snorted beer through my nose because if I had a nickel for every time, and this comes from my dad, I will be at a meeting and I will say, well, everybody needs their long street... And they're just being crickets. Complete <laughs> blank faces. Uh-huh. Anyone? History? Hello? But it's kind of obscure history, right? Is it's like I blame my dad for this, but Longstreet was the one on the night before Gettysburg mm-hmm. went to General Lee and said, If we fight tomorrow, we are gonna lose this day, we are gonna lose this battle, and we are gonna lose this war. And mm-hmm. so when somebody says, Well, everybody needs their Longstreet, it's a second in command who questions what the decision is that's about to be made. But my brother and I started sharing things that we talked about he said once in a meeting if we do this we're gonna find ourselves at the gates of saint petersburg on november 1st <laughs> just nothing there's a long list of come on people this isn't sherman's march to the sea or okay we are going to be crossing the rubicon my dad would do these at the dining room table and he would equally get crickets from all of us All right, I'm going to show you a picture. Let's see if you can read it over Zoom. Can you see what that is? It looks like an image from your last proctology exam. Oh, shoot. Hang on. Okay, no, this one. I mean this one. Ah, I do not know what that is. All right. I was just in my dad's cupboard, and I found a little container in his spice cupboard of cream of tartar Mm -hmm. from the early 1960s. (laughs) So during the pandemic... I was making soup, and I had a few leaves left over of Swiss chard. Mm -hmm. I put the leaves in a Ziploc bag. I wrote Swiss chard and the date, and I put it in my freezer. In that exact moment, I knew that my transformation to my parents was complete. Because I will find a little bag labeled with Swiss chard in 30 years in the back of the freezer. Far be it from me to turn the conversation, but if I could be so bold, yeah, what in God's name are you talking about? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, I know what it is. I remember now. <laughs> okay, and we're back. Yeah, and yeah. Um... <laughs> So here's what tends to happen in life, right? You don't understand something, you even mock something, you cringe when other people do things, and later on you find yourself doing things to the point of wanting to go apologize to the people you Mm. judged. As we are growing up in academia, we've almost made a cute little cottage industry out of vilifying reviewer two, and yet... Eventually, what happens? Oh, I see where you're going. Circle of life. That was a nice pivot. That was really nice. Normally, yours are totally non sequiturs. I've been working on my pivots. We talk about carsophagus, (laughs) and then you say, this reminds me of moderation. I've been working on it. So we hate Reviewer 2, yeah. and yet we pull out our cell phone and turn on the light so that we can read the menu, and we sit alone in our thoughts, revealing, I have become my 88-year-old mother. Yes, that is exactly right. So we are the Reviewer 2s of the world, and we had an episode previously when we were talking about how as authors you manage the reviews that you get from the reviewers, including Reviewer 2, from the editor, 
how you can speak to those things when perhaps maybe you should disagree with those things and how to handle that artfully. But I'd really like to think about it from the other perspective, the perspective of what we have ultimately become, right? We have ascended to the dubious honor of being reviewer too. And I'd like to talk about maybe some of the things that we understand better now that we're in that position and maybe maybe flip that into how can we be better reviewer twos overall. You made a comment in an earlier episode about the latent curriculum. It's mm-hmm. things that we expect graduate students to know. We don't teach them, and then we criticize them for not knowing. Right. I love this gig. I absolutely uh-huh. love this gig. <laughs> so let's pivot from there and talk about what makes a quantitative review of a substantive paper. So just to lay out some ground rules. We're not talking about reviewing a quantitative paper. We're not talking about something in psychometric or psych methods. As we're talking about how do you examine a substantive manuscript through a quantitative lens. I would start by saying a quantitative review of a substantive manuscript only relates in part to the analytic strategy that was actually used. I believe a quantitative review of a substantive paper is examining the entire arc of the paper from intro to method to results to discussion through a quantitative lens, only one component of which is the core of the analytic method. 100% true. Everything that you do in a substantive paper has to line up. There has to be a story. You use the word arc. When I read the introduction of a paper, I should know what methods are coming, right? It's almost like a game. If I get to the end of the introduction and I don't know what's coming in terms of clear research questions, the analyses that are aligned with that, then I think that they have not done their job in the introduction. So absolutely, it starts from the very first setting the tone all the way through the interpretations, making sure that you are not overreaching with regard to some of the conclusions that the analyses might or might not have led you to. Part of the original thing I said with regard to our parents, there are some things that we just find ourselves doing that our parents did. And in the context of reviewing, we could say there are some things that reviewers do that annoy us that all of a sudden we find ourselves doing. Mm. But the other thing I said... There are some things that our parents did that we will fight tooth and nail to make sure that we never do. And most of the times, the vilification of reviewer two is around all of the things that person does. It's not just that the person maybe thinks our paper is not particularly good, but it's often the tone in which that's communicated, intimations that are made, just factual errors, all of those kinds of things. And I think that this is an opportunity to say, well, what do our parents do that drove us crazy and we want to make sure we never do? We can do that in the context of reviewing as well. How not to be reviewer too, basically. The guiding one for me is one of these wonderful Latin terms, right? All you have to do is memorize a few of them phonetically. It's like an African gray parrot where I don't know what they mean, but you memorize it and then you drop it into conversation of things like, well, it's a synchronon or there's a quid pro quo, or that's a non sequitur. It's like, ah, what a cracker, what a cracker, it's a non sequitur. <laughs> Drawing one of those in is wieneris avoidus, mm-hmm. which is Latin for don't be a wiener. Romanes ain't domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. <laughs> What's Latin for Roman? Come on, ah, come on. Romanus? Goes light. Anus? Pocket of plural of Anus is? Annie? Romani. 
I think we are all at Uh a point that when we get out of bed in the morning, we can be governed throughout our day by wienerus avoidus. Mm -hmm. Be supportive, be constructive, don't be a wiener. When we teach statistics, you and I are in this position, as are many of the people out there, in IntroStat, people come to you and they are terrified, they already hate you, they don't want to take the class, and we are this person who makes a big difference. We're a person who either builds up that wall further and makes them feel like, see, that's why I hate it, or we're people who tear down the wall and make them think, yeah, that's not so bad, and maybe it's worth learning more. We're in the same position as reviewers. People are handing us their child. We have choices in terms of how we communicate about that. And I think wienerus avoidus is absolutely the way to go. You got to be a decent human being. You have to find a way to be critical without making it something that is personal. But one thing is I view myself as part of a team, right? Here is this work. And I am part of a team that involves the author, involves the editor, involves the other reviewers, and involves myself. And I have to try to figure out if there's a roadmap for this paper. I try to use the language of someone who genuinely wants to help. Sometimes that help is to go back to the drawing board, and sometimes that help is to massage the work as it is. If I had a pair of words that I like when I think about this is constructive skepticism. Yes. I think that when you have to convey some of your skepticism, that there are ways that you can make it more palatable and there are ways you can make it less palatable. So I always make sure that I convey some of the strengths of the paper and not trivial ones. And I know that the reader realizes there will be a but coming. You and I both were in the court-ordered <laughs> session. It's and. <laughs> That's right. Here's some things I really like about the paper. And here are some opportunities for improvement. When I'm communicating these things that might involve skepticism or things that are not entirely clear, you always have to keep in mind that the things that you say can be taken in ways that are different from the way you intended them. Because you have tremendous power in this process. How I sometimes think about it is innocent until proven guilty, right? These are Mm -hmm. smart, dedicated, good people who are trying to make a unique contribution to the scientific literature. And I'm playing some small role in bringing that to fruition. I want to open with some framing in a positive way. There's a balance in here. And maybe this is a pivot point is don't be Mm -hmm. a wiener open with a positive statement about what's being done, but then roll back your sleeves and offer real, constructive, skeptical evaluations of what's been done and how it might be improved upon. Because if not, then it just becomes a hand-holding, Rogerian, unconditional, positive regard task that is not serving either the paper or the field as a whole. So how do you do that? As someone who has received a review from you before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh (laughs) There's a little bit of snark in the review. You know that line about, I admit I am unaware of a citation supporting this, but then again, I never saw the need for one. Yeah, Yeah. there's a snark in that. I I see that upon reflection. Uh It was a younger you. There are people out there who are going to start assuming the role of reviewer, often for the purpose of addressing things quantitatively, although I think it needs to be in the context of the entire paper. Some of the people will be substantive reviewers 
who then stumble upon things that are quantitative that they wish to comment on. So the people who are out there listening right now who are going to be in this role, I want to make sure that we give some guidance to being a better reviewer, right? And some of the things that we have already said include saying some things positive, not for the sake of saying some things positive, but really just making sure that you emphasize what the strengths of the manuscript are, and then providing some constructive skepticism to help the paper to, would you say, to be successful? or to help to evaluate the paper in the context of its larger worth as a contribution to the field. Tell me about how you navigate your communication of this constructive skepticism. I was very, very fortunate to come up through a grad training program that had a deep respect for research methods. So I went through Arizona State University. Clark Presson is one of the best classes I ever had in my academic life, and he had research methods for clinical psychology. But then it was followed by Steve West, who beat Cooking Campbell into us. I think from that, I developed a framework of I approach a review from a perspective of validity. Mm-hmm. When I think about a story, so moving from the intro to the methods results to the discussion, I have a lens of validity, construct validity about measurement, statistical conclusion validity, were the analyses done correctly, internal validity of the validity of the inferences I'm making about the process under study and external validity, generalizability across person, place, and time. And I often find almost my entire review being cast in terms of these different types of validity. All of those statements have to do with this study particular and how it was conducted. The piece for me that I often have more trouble with than that is the place that this piece has in the larger pantheon of research in that substantive arena. How do you handle that? Uh, Clarify. What do you mean? Sure. This is a really, really well-done study that didn't need to be done. Oh my God, you reviewed one of my papers. (laughs) (laughs) So that strikes at a bigger core here, which is... I believe some of the best quantitative reviews are done by substantive people. Speaking for you, which I do routinely. Yes. <laughs> I would imagine both of us would agree that a quantitative review isn't necessarily picking the individual with the deepest technical knowledge about mixture models. Mm-hmm. It's more someone who is embedded within the substantive arena that has a legitimate quantitative understanding about the world, which I Mm -hmm. think a lot of listeners to the silly podcast are. That's exactly who they are. And one thing that I would beat home is the vast majority of you are quantitative reviewers. You just don't know it. Mm -hmm. Having a foot in the substantive realm and a foot in the quantitative realm can evaluate all of these forms of validity of a particular manuscript while also paying attention to the role that this might play in the broader literature. So for me, this raises an interesting issue with regard to the people who are listening, who will find themselves in this position. In fact, you all might feel that you're the substantive person who is only peripherally commenting on the quantitative stuff. You might think that, well, I'm not really the quant person on this review. I'll offer some comments. I'm really the person of substance. Well, guess what? You may well be the quantitative person who is doing this review. You may be the best that there is out there. 
I will say some things about that, and Patrick, you may or may not agree with that. I, I disagree. Think... Oh, okay. Well, what's your position then? Just the opposite of what you said. So why okay. don't you go ahead and say what you're going to say, and then my view will be <laughs> okay. just the opposite of that. I think my position is summed up by the most famous line from the movie, A Few Good Men. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. That's how I feel about the reviewers who are out there, right? You are the ones who are stationed out there. You're the one who has to try to make the best decisions possible about the quality of the work. And you might not feel like you are the best equipped to handle this. Well, you know what? Not every paper really requires the absolute state of the art in every single quantitative method. I think there's such a thing as good enough quantitative methods. If I give you a, a very simple question, a question about group differences, for example, even on means, there are a variety of ways that you can answer that question. And as methodologists, we might say, yeah, you know, that's not really taking advantage of the most recent work. You know what? We don't always need that to be able to address substantive questions. We need people who understand how the methods work, who have an awareness of methods, don't necessarily know how a microwave works, but can use it to, to do things well, right? To cook. Can you cook well with a microwave? I no. say you can. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I disagree. But the point is we need people who understand the connection between research questions and methods and who can help people to articulate those better as authors. Well, you said you feel the opposite. <laughs> I completely agree with that. And that's also why I like that arc of the review. I have actually received reviews when I was AE where the reviewer has said to me, back channel, I didn't read the intro and discussion. I only read the methods and results. I don't see how you can write a review doing that. I simply don't. I, I agree with that. And I hope that's one of the take-home messages that people get from this, that even if you're summoned specifically to be the quantitative reviewer, you really have to put that in context. And then you have to ask yourself, as we're talking about, is this method adequate to address the research question? If there's a reason to suggest that someone use another method, if there's a failing in what's being done, and there is genuine added value in using something that is more complex, then suggest it and justify why. Otherwise, don't preen about with all of the knowledge that you have, and then in the end say, well, I guess this is good enough. I think you're raising what I view as the holy trinity of a good review, which is what is the issue, why is it a potential limitation, and what can be done about it? I hate these hollow kind of, I worry about the potential inadequacy of measurement. Mm -hmm. What the hell does that mean? What does it mean? Why is it a problem? And what can the authors do about it? If you can't fit that holy trinity, then don't raise it. Yes. It's not a two-paragraph opportunity for you to talk about your lament for the field. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. One of the things that my dad had that I really want to emulate is he knew when not to say something. You might have a lot to say, and it might be bursting. And that is the case sometimes with a review where you're like, oh my gosh, this is in my area of expertise. Whoa, whoa, pull the horses back, right? That's not necessarily in the best service of the work that you're reviewing here. I really, really like your holy trinity there, that if it can't pass that test, then just shut up. I was at a conference a number of years ago, and a key senior person had not been invited to present 
and they gave their talk anyway five minutes at a time during the question and answer for each person. And so it's kind of like that. A review is not your opportunity to write an op-ed piece on how you view the field. Is This is an in and out, nobody gets hurt. Mm-hmm. You're trying to identify these specific issues, right? Be concise, be specific, be clear, be pragmatic. And also realize, it's paraphrasing a quote, I'm sorry I didn't write you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. It is harder to write something (laughs) briefer than it is longer. You can write an incredibly good review in one page of text. Mm -hmm. I would say my modal review right now is one page long. It will occasionally go to one and a half pages. If you're writing more than two pages, you're losing the forest for the trees. So I feel a lot of what we've talked about so far is cruising at 30,000 feet, nursing Mm -hmm. a drink, pinning (laughs) your face to the window, looking down. Let's start to come out of cruising altitude and talk a little bit more specifically. Okay. When you approach a paper like this, so there's some substantively oriented manuscript that you're giving a quantitative review to. How do you approach the paper and what are common kind of themes that you find in these kinds of papers? First thing I am always looking for has to do with consonance between the question and the methods that are chosen. They really just have to go hand in hand. I see all too often that they don't. Either someone has chosen a method and they're engineering the front end to fit it and they're leaving out obvious aspects of a substantive question they should be asking, Or they're asking some very good questions and then they're using some method that doesn't quite fit. So that's the biggest one right out of the gate for me. If I read the introduction and I can't predict what they're going to do analytically, I think there's a problem. Never surprise the reader. Mm -hmm. When you come off of the research hypotheses, you should know exactly how they're going to be tested. One of my most common critiques is some variation of there seems to be a disjoint between the theoretical model and the statistical model. And the paper would be strengthened if this were reconciled. I bet you could do a search of your hard drive of that phrase in quotes, and it would yield many, many documents. And I just outed myself to probably 20 (laughs) people. Yeah, maybe don't go with direct quotes. Also, it reflects that I could write a two-page review based on the title. In fact, I think an app could be developed. (laughs) It's like Mad Libs, but a review. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. Oh, we could write one of those. (laughs) But without doing farts and boogers in most of the blanks? No. No? No. (laughs) I love that idea. All right. So what that is, is it goes back to that arc issue is a quantitative review is not a review of the middle part of the paper. Mm -hmm. A quantitative review is a review of the entirety of the paper through a quantitative lens. And so making that pivot from the introduction into the methods is critical. Yep. That's a big one for me right out of the gate. What I will often look for is, is there substantive theory that gives rise to specific hypotheses? I kind of want to be yelled at in a paper. 
I don't like to navigate a woven web of language and argument to distill those. Mm -hmm. I want like hypothesis one, hypothesis two, hypothesis three. You don't want to read Agatha Christie, even if you write Agatha Christie. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my world. Some of it is just anticlimactic to talk about even here is just moving into a logical chain of argument about is the sample cohesive and consistent with the hypotheses? Are the measures associated with the theoretical constructs that were laid out in the introduction? A very common critique I will raise is some variation of the sample and or the measures are not well-suited to empirically evaluate the hypotheses as stated here. And where that often comes up is if someone is using existing data, secondary data analysis, is trying to kind of Frankenstein monster a question onto an existing survey. And a lot of times I'll just say it's a wonderful intro and intriguing important hypotheses but the current sample and measures are not well suited to provide a rigorous empirical evaluation of these predictions. Yeah, and that's a death blow, I'm afraid, right? That's a non-R&R. Yep, five-finger death punch right there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm jotting that one down to use later. Yeah, so when you sort of spouted off a bunch of those, you're absolutely right. And the measurement quality, something that we spoke about last season, If people haven't justified that the measures that they have are good quality, that they have validity specifically in the context of the population to which they wish to generalize, I need to know those things, right? Those are not trivial. If you're making a case based on variables that you can't convince me are measuring things that you care about and measuring them well in the population that you care about, then you haven't done your job. Mm-hmm. And if there is a disconnect, then you have to try to at least make an argument as to why that disconnect is not going to be critical in this particular case. I want to make sure that people have taken the data structure into account. Often, especially in the worlds that I tend to deal with, there are often multi-level data structures that people either ignore or they sort of try to explain away loosely. But I would like some sort of treatment of it, acknowledgement of it, And if you think it's going to be a non-issue, then make that case. But don't sweep it under the carpet. My approach in a methods section is often how I grade an undergrad's research paper, which is detail. It's interesting how many times people will forget to say how many items are in a scale Mm -hmm. or what the response options were or even how scale scores were computed. I think part of it is we're under constant pressure to keep articles short. But part of it is what you and I are guilty of as well. When you say, well, we use the depression subscale of the BSI, I know what that is. And I know how many items there are. And I know what the response scale is. And I just kind of forget that other people don't know that. All of the methods that people use have assumptions, right? And sometimes those assumptions are relatively easily checked. And sometimes there are assumptions that are so baked into the statistical machinery or there are assumptions that occur at some underlying level that you can't really assess. I still want to know that the author knows this. I still want to know that the author has thought about these things and checked where those things can be checked. 
And you know what? I don't actually require in the end that all assumptions are met. I require that someone has demonstrated that they understand this and that they understand the potential limitations that violating those assumptions can have for the interpretations that come later, right? They might put a little bit of a, um, a little bit of asterisk next to those things when it comes to interpretation. But I need to know that you have done your homework. I need everything laid out on the table. And that was a golden rule I learned from my advisor, Lori Chasson, which is beat the reviewer to the punch, beat mm-hmm. the reviewer to the critique. If you say something about missing data, you communicate to the reader that you're aware of missing data. If you say something about potential non-normality, again, as a reader, you don't say, oh, there's no way this measure is normally distributed, and I wonder if the authors are aware that's a potential problem. Mm -hmm. But if you have a single sentence in that addresses that clearly and objectively, what I don't like reading is when an author says, we determined the distribution's approximated normality sufficiently for the assumptions here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, throw me a bone. Yeah. Anything? Anything? Skew, kurtosis? Ouija board? Did your five-year-old daughter say, yay, mommy, it's normal. <laughs> I just throw me a bone. So detail, detail, detail. That's what I'm looking for in the methods section. Are you comfortable transitioning to the results portion? Yeah, let's move then following that Agatha Christie arc is we've mm-hmm. got the intro, set up the hypotheses, we've transitioned into the methods that I think about as the building blocks, right? These are the Legos mm-hmm. in what you're next going to do into the results. The results are where you really roll back your sleeves, I think, and consider the quant aspects of the analysis. But that's also where I shuffle over to my bookshelf and pull down one of my more dog-eared copies of a book, which is your reviewer's guide. You liar. Do you want me to angle the camera? (laughs) No, dear God, don't. I know you don't wear pants when we record. Why don't you tell a minute or two about your reviewer's guide book, because I think this is incredibly important for this aspect of the review. Well, okay. That was very nice of you to bring it up. I don't really want to turn this into an infomercial, and I don't want people to feel like they have to run out and buy this particular book. It's called The Reviewer's Guide to Quantitative Methods in Social Sciences. Wait, there's much, much more. We also want you to have this six-in-one kitchen tool. How much would you pay for all these items? It's an edited volume. The most recent edition is edited by myself, Ralph Mueller, and Laura Stapleton. Imagine you're someone who has to review a manuscript, and it uses a particular quantitative method. The book has 35 chapters on a whole bunch of different quantitative methods, and each chapter is laid out with a brief description of what the method is, and then a table of all the things you need to be looking for in a manuscript that uses that particular method, followed by a point-by-point enumeration of why that's important and what you ought to be looking for in those. So every chapter is laid out in exactly the same way. It's meant to be a reference book. And we've been told by a lot of reviewers that it's incredibly useful for them. So they say, I remember cluster analysis, but I'm now reviewing a paper that uses cluster analysis. So I just want to know that I'm looking for the right things here. They flip open the book to the chapter on cluster analysis, and it lays out all the key points that you should be looking for by introduction, method, results, and discussion. And one of the really nice things is that we've got a lot of feedback from authors too, right? If this is laying out what reviewers are looking for, then authors also find it useful to make sure that they're Mm. putting those kinds of things 
in their paper. Greg is being very modest. I highly recommend it. Even if not from a reviewer's perspective, it is an incredibly useful review of three dozen different approaches that you might use in your own work. Now, how much would you pay? I think it's a wonderful tool in that not all of us are experts in everything. Indeed, none of us are, right? We each have drill downs. You can still offer a really rigorous, thoughtful, quantitative review of a manuscript that uses a technique that you've never used yourself, Mm -hmm. but with a little bit of outside help and then embedding it within the broader narrative, you can write a strong, helpful, thoughtful review. Thank you. Yeah, and so that actually helps with some of the drill down at different points in a paper, specifically around the particular method or methods that are used within that paper. But if we pull back a little bit and go into the results section, are there some things there that aren't necessarily method-specific? What I mean by that is that aren't attached specifically to regression or cluster analysis or whatever. Some themes that come out for you? Everything we do is inherently subjective. We have to make thoughtful decisions that don't follow codified decision rules. And many, many things we do have a deep subjective albeit informed and supportive, but still subjective decisions, I want to see that communicated in the results. Mm -hmm. I don't like it when some wackadoodle complicated SEM with correlated residuals and cross-loadings and all of these crazy things is presented as the originally hypothesized model. I like having some embracing of... We did this, and then we did this, and then we examined these residuals, and then we modified the model, and based on these preliminary results, we made this decision. The idea, I think, that people get in their heads is that it has to be so clean that what you propose is what you do, and there's no deviating from that. Things come up. Right? Things come up like any experiment that we might run in any one of the sciences. Something happens unexpectedly. And I think that doesn't mean that everything gets tossed. I think you just have to chronicle that. Provide detail, explain where you made a judgment call, and it is up to the audience to decide whether or not that was a reasonable thing. Make your case. This is not step, 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 step. This is step, evaluate, step, evaluate, step, evaluate. Think about the whole process. So I completely agree with you. I just want to see a chronicling of the decision-making that was made along the way. I would say one of the most common critiques that I make is there's insufficient information to justify the adequacy of the fit of a given model Mm -hmm. and that that is the superior model of other available competing models. All of these comments are kind of free of what the actual analysis is. It Mm -hmm. could be an SEM. It could be a growth model. It could be a multi-level model. These are more thematic. Whatever that is, establish that the model that you are adjudicating and finalizing is an adequate representation of the empirical data that you observed. And how did you make that decision? So just hypothetically, it's an SEM. What process brought you to this final model? And what myriad of empirical evidence can you provide to establish that this model adequately represents the data and supports the subsequent interpretation of the parameters that were obtained from that model? 
And in the results, it's a tricky balance between enough information and not too much information. I don't know what the right cocktail is for that, but I know that my comments often revolve around you either need to provide more detail to justify some of the things that you've done, or you need to take the 17 tables and distill it down to two or three key tables. And as a reviewer, I always try to be cognizant of the reader who's ultimately going to consume this and try to manage the information that comes out. That notion of kindling reader energy, I think, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. A reader needs to navigate a manuscript from the start to the end and not have expended their reader energy before reading the final few paragraphs, which ironically is the most important part of the paper. And how many papers have you read? when you hit the last few pages and you're so intellectually exhausted that you're not even filing away what the biggest take-home points are. Right. You said you weren't sure of the perfect cocktail. I know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. It's whatever the authors didn't provide. <laughs> so I will either say there's too much information and this needs to be distilled down or there is insufficient information. So again, welcome to Hypocrisy Central. <laughs> One pet peeve, if I could be grumpy old man with kids on the lawn, I am getting increasingly frustrated with using supplemental materials as a dumping ground mm -hmm. for things that you either want to have table 17, but you don't want to number it as table 17 because mm -hmm. you know you're going to get yelled at. And so you name it table A17 mm -hmm. in the appendix and then treat it in the text as if it were in the body of the paper. Sure. That drives me insane. So what advice do you give someone to manage that then? As, as a reviewer who is offering this parental advice, I mean, what do you say? How do you guide them in that? Because it's a real problem that I know I experience as an author. So how do you guide the person? What are the decision criteria? It makes me think of the New Yorker cartoon where the author is sitting across from the editor and there's a giant stack of manuscript pages on the desk that's the draft of his book. Mm -hmm. And the woman editor is a big smile and she's pushing it over and she said, now take it home and really make it sing. <laughs> And the author has this miserable mm -hmm. look on his face. So that's kind of my feedback is take it home and really make it sing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's a signal to noise. You need to identify the salient findings that are embedded within the entirety of what you've done and try to find that balance. One thing I try in my own writing and I encourage my students is tables do not replace text. Tables augment text. Right. And so trying to find what are the key findings, tabling those, talking about those in the body of the text in referential ways. So say that factor loadings ranged from a low of this to a high of this with a modal value of that, paren see table three for details. Mm -hmm. I'd like things like that. Mm -hmm. But what I don't like as a reader is somebody backing into my driveway and jacking up the dump truck and just dumping the entirety of their results mm -hmm. and then expect me as the reader to go out back and sort through it. Yep. That's not my job. That's your job. And that takes experience on the part of the author. And you really just have to stick to the story that you have. How do you feel about replacing tables with visuals, graphics that try to convey that information? 
you often will lose the numerical precision of what's in the table, but then you can also sometimes see patterns. So do you have a preference? I will always take a figure over a table. Mm-hmm. To have a 20-row, 10-column table in 11-point font with daggers and asterisks and daisies <laughs> and the little Egyptian guy with his hand up and down, I just they just make me tired. Uh-huh. I don't mind losing the precision. I would take graphics always over dense tables. Yeah. So I will also direct people to trying to represent it in a way that the reader can take in the trends to try to understand where the strong points of what's being examined might be or the weak points might be, etc. So I, I do really gravitate toward that. Something I try to avoid doing is redesigning their analytic strategy. (laughs) You alluded to this earlier. Just because I know a different way of doing it doesn't mean it's a better way. Mm -hmm. Just because I know a more complicated way of doing it doesn't mean that that's a better way. A t-test could be perfect. Uh, SEM could be Mm over-engineered. And so maybe something that I just try to encourage myself when I'm writing a review like this is not, is there another way? Is there a more complicated way? And try to keep focused. Is this analytic method empirically evaluating the research hypotheses in the way that the authors intend? And there are multiple variables at play here, in my view. One is certainly the research question. The other is the, honestly, the skill scope associated with the author, skill scope associated with the journal. It sounds arrogant, I'm sure, but some journals are not using certain methods yet. And I want to see those methods ushered in, but I'm not going to make this author the sacrificial lamb because they could have analyzed it differently. So I always feel like I have a duty to have fidelity to the question, fidelity to a developmental level of the author, and to take the context of the journal into account as well that I'm reviewing for it. Yeah, that's thin ice to skate around on top of. You're absolutely right, as if a more traditional method is doing what is intended, then I'm not going to say, oh, you need to go download this R package. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't have a sliding scale on rigor. It goes to a journal, and I don't care if my daughter wrote it and submitted it. If it calls for a bivariate latent curve model, then that is what I will request. Hmm. And I appreciate that it was a high school project, but I don't care. Hmm. That's interesting that you use the word rigor. You associate complexity of the methods with rigor. That's not deterministic. Mm -hmm. If the intro weaves a story about within-person trajectories over time and the analysis fits uh, autoregressive cross-leg panel model that aggregates the between and the within, then I will say this is an inappropriate analytic strategy for the hypotheses as proposed here. Yeah, I agree with that. And to me, that's a separate issue. If there were an easy method, (laughs) traditional, easier method for that kind of decomposition and a fancier way to accomplish it, I might be happy enough with the easier way. Me too. I didn't mean to miscommunicate otherwise. Yeah. I'm just saying if I knew a first year grad student was Mm -hmm. first author on the paper, that would not change how I evaluate the method and the results. That's all I'm saying. Then if you wrote it, I would have exactly the same expectation. And I would assume everybody else would as well. 
Yeah, so for me, if there's fidelity of the method to the research questions and the other issues that we've talked about have been addressed, but there are still methodological options, different ways it can be analyzed and framed, but they're all sort of getting at the same end. I might be willing to tolerate something that is somewhat less sophisticated as long as it still checks those other boxes. Yeah, and I totally agree. What else do you have on your results list? I am a big fan of sensitivity analyses. So it goes back to the poke and stick. Mm -hmm. I really like to see even a few sentences of, did you look for outliers? Did you try an alternative parameterization of random effects? Did you power up one level of interactions with covariates to make sure you're not missing conditional effects? Whatever it might be. I kind of like seeing some evidence of the stability of your model. Absolutely. I would like to see that addressed. The other stuff that I have with regard to the results start to become increasingly method specific. You know, if you're doing this, make sure to report that. So it's a little harder for me to pull back on that. But I'm happy to transition to the discussion stuff. Go ahead. Release the Kraken. My child waits to do your will. Release the Kraken. One of the most common, and I'm going to out myself to another 20 people, (laughs) although in fairness to me, as I see this a lot in reviews that other people write, in the same spirit of pivoting from the intro into the methods is pivoting out of the results into the discussion, some variation of, I believe, the theoretical inferences drawn from these models exceed the support offered by the empirical results themselves. So it's some variation of over-interpreting effects. You take a partial regression coefficient and talk about policy changes in something or another. It's just getting excited about your results and overstepping your bounds. Yep. I summarize that as, whoa there. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. It's this really wonderful exuberance. And the person's been working on it for a long time. And it's coming to a culmination. And that squared semi-partial is going to save the world. Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting happy feet. In the spirit of hypocrisy central, another very common critique I will make is the manuscript does not adequately articulate the specific unique contributions being made here. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to I like being yelled at in a manuscript. I want a pop-up book. Mm -hmm. I want to be told over and over again what's happening here. One of the biggest elements of a peer-reviewed manuscript is there has to be something that moves us beyond what we already know. And I don't like going dumpster diving for that. Yep. I want you to tell me unambiguously what the unique contribution is, but I'm going to ding you if you get really excited and start moving beyond (laughs) what the empirical results actually support. I would also add that this should have been telegraphed in the introduction. The idea of what this study is going to contribute above and beyond things. As you said, you want a pop-up book. You want things reiterated for you here and there so you can keep up with the story, so you can keep tying it back. I want to know what the marginal contribution is going to be in the setup of the paper. I want it reiterated at the end. And I want it to be cautious. I want it to be tempered. I don't want it to be overgeneralized. And that's our job. Yep. And it goes back to middle school English lit. Tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. Done. Now let's get to limitations. 
I would love to take credit for this, but a colleague of mine years ago had this great description of he doesn't want to see a limitation that if you reversed it, only an ignoramus would endorse it. So he said, if the limitations were future research needs to use smaller sample sizes, more homogeneous samples, Mm -hmm. higher SES, you reverse the limitation, Mm -hmm. only an ignoramus would endorse it. That's not really a limitation. Mm -hmm. I want to see real, legitimate, thoughtful limitations communicate to me that you're aware of the limits of what you're doing, but be thoughtful and realistic, both so that you can telegraph that, but also that you can legitimately lay out where we need to go next. So give me an example of one or two of those limitations that you would think, yep, that's the kind of thing I want to see right here. We need larger sample sizes (laughs) and more items. So maybe... We used a series of latent curve models to fit nonlinear trajectories to adolescent substance use over time. Mm -hmm. This analytic method assumes that all subjects are governed by the same underlying trajectory and only differ in magnitude. It may be that there are subgroups within the sample that are governed by different forms of trajectories that are not captured by a single common functional form, future work would do well to examine these alternative functions in other settings. Something like that. That was really, really nice. But when you do that, throw a bone as to why that's not a critical issue for this paper. Yes. What I would then say is we conducted a series of sensitivity analyses none of which indicated such functional heterogeneity existed. And we do not view this as a significant limitation here. Yeah, I want to see limitations. I don't want to see limitations gratuitously. I don't want people to populate a limitation section because they feel that they have to populate a limitation section. Also, honestly, I don't want to leave with the limitations as the last thing that I read. I see that a lot, and I think it weakens the paper. I want the limitations there to be able to temper the conclusions, to be able to pull the reins back on that overextending of generalizability. But I still want to know where we go from here, right? What does this tell us? What does this not tell us? What are the next steps as we go on out? It is really lets the air out of the balloon for me if I navigate a 28-page paper and then there's a final paragraph of really thoughtful limitations that are spot on Mm -hmm. and it just ends. Yep. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, okay, (laughs) that's that. (laughs) All right, panoramic view. This is end of Jurassic Park. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know, for those of you who read Jurassic Park and those of you who watched the movie Jurassic Park, Mm -hmm. those are really different endings. And so we're doing the movie Jurassic Park of the spectacular cliffs and sunset and ocean, not firebombing the island. Uh (laughs) Way to give it away. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Panoramic view. A quantitative review of a substantive paper is reading the entirety of the paper through a quantitative lens and bolting each piece to the next in principled argument and empirical support. And to do so honestly, 
I am a big fan of pointing out the positives and keeping a constructive tone throughout and really doing everything you can to help this work become better. And for me, an incredibly important thing is to embrace that your expertise is the combination of substantive and quantitative knowledge and the ability to meld those together. There is only one Doug Steinle in the world. There is only one Peter Bentler. There is one Leona Aiken who has drilled down unambiguous expertise in a particular area and that your unique contribution is putting all of that together together in a single unified perspective. I guess my only exit recommendation is think of all the reviewer twos who you have cursed and used your voodoo doll and (laughs) thrown your reviews against the wall. Think about that reviewer two and then think about how can I fill that role without being reviewer two. And just always remember... Wienerus, avoid us. And on that note, thank you, reviewer twos out there. Take care, everybody. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, couponers. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go to escape their family members, especially as the holidays approach. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get super cool Quantitude merch on Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disk of podcasts. Today's episode was sponsored by the phrase, Garbage In, Garbage Out, also known as election polling, and by autocorrect, combining letter and word probabilities along with a social correctness filter into an AI algorithm that often just yields complete ducking nonsense. And finally, by social network analysis, models for studying people who have interesting patterns of social connections created by people who don't. This is most definitely not NPR. Ayunt! What is ayunt? Go! Conjugate the verb to go. Uh, here, uh, ayunt is it, imus it is, ayunt. So ayunt is? Uh, uh, third person plural, uh, present indicative. Uh, they go. But Romans go home is an order, so you must use the... Yeah, imperative! Which is? Um, 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 e! Um, How many Romans? Plural, uh, plural, ite! Ite! Uh, Understand? Yes, sir! Now, right out under a times. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Hail Caesar, sir. Hail Caesar.